All right, guys, thanks for listening to today's show. I'm Ben. I'm Eric. And this is the Double Hall Podcast. All right, guys, today I'm joined here with Eric, even though we all know that's not his actual name, uh, but we're hiding it, you know, hiding his identity with a fake name, and uh, that's just the way things are. Isn't that right, Eric? That's right. And today we are going to be uh, joined by Mr. Levi Wilder, and that is his real name. And uh, he is a professional pilot, uh, a commercial fisherman uh, for a brief stint of the year. Uh, he's a dad, a husband. He's got experience uh, guiding for hunting and fishing and all kinds of things. Uh, he's a true renaissance man of the state of Alaska. So we're joined by him today. Levi, why don't you say hello to the good people? Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. All right. Hopefully you didn't want to talk anything you know, about yourself because Ben just told everyone what you do. So. That's, that's about it. And thank you for listening to the Double Hall Podcast. <laughs> See you next time. No, but for real, don't tune out yet uh, because we still have uh, a bunch of stuff to get to today. So just a little teaser. Eric was going on a moose hunt with uh, Caleb. Uh, if you listen to episode one, guide and pilot Caleb Davis, I think it was called, um, we had kind of talked briefly about uh, Eric and Caleb going on a moose hunt, but it didn't really work out like that. So Eric uh, will tell us about that in a little bit. He actually ended up going with Levi here. and mm-hmm. Well, Levi was always going to be going with us. It was supposed to be a group of four, but right. it didn't work out that way. Ended up just being you guys, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I went from being a bench player to a starter just like that. Yeah, Levi wasn't, you know, super excited about going in the first place. It's like a metaphor. He just wanted for my to use life. his new binoculars, which he did get to use. So success in that aspect. But um, don't don't yeah, tell yeah, him yeah, how we'll, we got we'll, the 72-inch incher yet. Yeah, we gotta save we'll, that. We'll get there. But we've been building the suspense for. You guys got know, a 72-inch sleeping mat? Don't us. Yeah, I know some of you maybe out there have just been like, when are they going to talk yeah. about the moose hunt? When each episode comes out, you're like, oh, is this when they're going to This tell has got to be the one, yeah. yeah. This yeah. is the one. We've kind of neglected it, but maybe you'll find out why. So, Levi, <laughs> um, I feel like you're giving too much away. That's okay. It's because it took that long to process the meat. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, Levi, why don't you start off by telling everyone uh, where you're from originally? Um, so I grew up in North Idaho, uh, not to be confused with South Idaho, Southern Idaho, North mm-hmm. Idaho. I grew up near Moscow, Idaho. Um, that's where the University of Idaho is. And then it's just a little bit south of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which is right across the border from Spokane, Washington. What are, what are the difference between North and South Idaho? Um, south Idaho is where all the potatoes are grown and the, it's flat and boring and North Idaho is where all the mountains are and cool lakes and backcountry farms. Yeah. And, and that's where University yeah. of Idaho is. Yeah. Yeah. If I wouldn't have gone to a Christian university in Ohio, which I was very fortunate to go to, I think University of Idaho would have been a pretty sweet place to be. I've always thought MSU, Montana State. Yeah. Or that. There's a lot of kids from Alaska that go to MSU. Yeah. They have like a fly fishing management program. Really? Where you like learn all about how to like support fisheries and. Wow. Study. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. It's basically like a like a mix between a wildlife biology, freshwater marine biology, mm-hmm. and then like I think you just fish a lot for your uh electives. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> it's like fly tying one oh two. And MSU is that in is that in Bozeman? I uh, I don't actually know. Okay. 
I can't quite remember. But campus is awesome looking, though. I'm sure Idaho's is, too. Did you live near the University of Idaho, or just kind of in... Um, so I was region. born like 15 minutes away from it, and then okay. most of my life, or uh, probably till 14 or so, I lived like in the same town. So I mean, yeah, it was part of our. And you said it was Moscow. Moscow. Yep. Do they speak Russian there? <laughs> nope. No Russians <laughs> there. Yeah, Moscow. That's over in uh, Russia. Yeah. You just add a W. Was yeah. it like a big like party college? It, well, so. Right across the border from the University of Idaho in Moscow is Pullman, Washington, and that's where the Washington State University is. Oh, okay. And I think for a while, I'm not sure what the time frame was, but I think there, they had some, the state had slightly looser restrictions on uh, drinks and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. a lot of kids did like to go to WSU because it was like an easy party college. So then... Right. They're within, you know, half an hour drive of each other. So University of Idaho, almost by extension, kind of got that, you know, atmosphere too. So during the school year, you'd get, I don't know, 30,000 kids coming in for between those two colleges. I didn't realize they were that close together. Yeah, it's a big, a big surplus of people. I mean, not to mention the professors and all their family. So yeah, there was definitely a little bit of the... So you guys, did you guys have some hooligans running around? Yeah, yeah. It's similar to uh, Soldotna in Alaska, how they all the tourism comes in and this whole city's like, Oh my goodness, everything's bogged down. All the locals are, I mean, they like the tourism in one breath, but then they're a little overwhelmed with the sheer volume of people. It's kind of how it was there as well. I imagine though, the tours coming into Sladotna are a lot more respectful and probably less reckless than a bunch of college kids. I don't know. Up until the time you get your fishing rod and your combat fishing on the Kenai, I guess. I mean, let's, I mean, both are drinking, you know, obscene <laughs> amounts of beers anyways. So what, what, uh, how old were you when you moved from Idaho and did you move straight to Alaska or was there like a stopover? Um, so I graduated high school at say 2011 and then I wasn't real set on going to college. I I'd taken a few classes at university of Idaho and I wasn't, I didn't really want to spend the money to go there all that bad. And I didn't have a direction of where I wanted to go. So I, worked construction and did some things like that, helped work on some houses. And, um, I went over to North Dakota for a couple months and just a couple different things like that. But I basically lived in Idaho. That was still where I, I was living up until, um, 2013 is when I moved up to Alaska. Yeah. And I, I originally started, I was just going to come up for a couple months in the summer. My uncle, he, uh, moved up here many years ago, I think back in the I don't know, a long time ago. He moved up here and he invited me to come up and work. So I was going to come up for a couple months and then go back for back to Idaho for the winter. Well, probably about a month into my stay up here, I was like, wow, this is great. I think I should stay. Stayed. So were you a sportsman growing up in Idaho or did you not really get into the outdoors until you came up here? Um, no, I did. I did some outdoor type stuff. I mean, I liked I mean, motorbike riding and stuff. And hmm. my older brother, he kind of got me involved in hunting. And he would, I'm kind of a social hunter. I mean, I like right. hunting, but it's because I like going out with people and hanging out with the dudes, you know, mm-hmm. not as much about going to for the love of the kill kind of thing. Right. So, um, did I, you do a lot of hunting in Idaho or? Yeah, a decent bit. Okay. I have a, I have a decent, I was actually just trying to figure out how to get it up here, a decent whitetail. Oh, nice. Rack to bring up. Um, I think, I can't quite remember, but I'm pretty sure it scored like just like eight points below making like the book of, you know. Do you remember what the score was? 
I want to say, I don't know. I think a 162, but I, oh, wow. it's kind of a guess. So how old were you when you shot that? I think, let's see, I think I was 14, 13 or 14. Nice. This It's actually kind of a funny story because we'd been out hunting. So my brother and his uh, cousin, they're, they're the same age. Um, and then I had a cousin. So two older brothers, my brother and my older cousin. And then there's two of us younger ones. So our two older brothers would bring us out. And uh, we had been hunting for, I don't know, probably the better part of three weekends, you know, that we'd go out hunting on the weekends and then we'd they'd have to go work on the during the week. So then they'd take us back out the next weekend. So it was like our third weekend hmm. attempt going out. And we hadn't been successful, hadn't really seen anything. And I think this was like uh, the last weekend. It might have been the last day of the season, actually. And so, we're you know, we wake up at four in the morning, go out drive out to our spot with our truck and then hike out from there, you know? And, uh, so the last day of the season, I'm pretty sure we wake up and I was just feeling like crap. I just did not feel good. I had a headache and a fever and Kobach's crying. <laughs> and, but it was the last day of the season and my brother's, you know, he's like, Oh, I really want to go out. Levi, if you, you know, if you feel it at all, like you could go out just for a little bit, let's just try it, you know, just go for a little bit. And so the morning drags on. And if you're a hunter, you know that the mornings are the best time. You got to get out before light and be ready to go. And so, I mean, it was like 10, 10, 30, 11 by the time we we're getting ready to go out and go hunting, which, you know, usually the middle of the day is when you'd want to take a break from hunting because the animals quit moving. It's daylight. They all lay down and it's hot and sunny and whatever. And so I take some ibuprofen, you know, I'm just like trying to go out and give it one last shot. Not yeah. really that optimistic. We go out, we park the truck, walk our, you know, half mile into where we're going to kind of hunt. And my brother's like, all right, well, you're not feeling too good. I'll try to, is the rut, so he's going to try to call one in for me. And you basically with whitetail, you can kind of make sounds and thrash around and bang antlers on trees. And it, you know, makes one think that there's other, you know, uh, bucks around. So they kind of mm-hmm. charge in to like take over. Right. And so he tells me to sit in this little clearing. And so I sit down and I was out of it. I was just kind of like sitting there. And he, I can kind of hear him. He's a little ways away, thrashing around and banging and stuff. And I'm just sitting there, have my gun in my lap, and just like blankly staring as I was still kind of feeling under the weather. And I just remember I was just sitting there staring kind of at my, where my feet would have been if I was standing, just kind of like right in front of me in the ground. And then I look up, and there's this nice white tail buck just like standing in the clearing, just like. 30 yards away from me broadside 30 and yards wow it was like right there i could oh so close yeah i just pulled up my rifle and shot and didn't take another step and fell over so it's like wow that was really easy it's always that easy man yeah <laughs> that's the only white tail i've actually shot so yeah it was really the, nice of your brother hard. to yeah let set me set you up like that yeah yeah so it's so I haven't been successful after that. I have hunted <laughs> since then, but oh, we've given a we've given too much away about the well, no hunt. whitetail hunting. Yeah, whitetail, <laughs> whitetail hunting, deer hunting. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, cool. So, did you ever fly in Idaho, or did that come later? Nope, I never flew. Never. Yeah. Did you do any fishing? Down there? I did. I did some fishing, um, but right before I came up to Alaska, I started getting into fly fishing a little bit. One okay. of my my uh, brother-in-laws, he's real real into fly fishing. Um, and he kind of got me hooked on it. He took me out a, a couple different times. And so is there a lot of accessible 
rivers where you were at in Idaho, or did you have to kind of drive a while? To... Um, yeah, they're they're not they're not terribly far. I'd say most of them. You at least we like to drive like an hour away. Um, okay. The rivers he liked to go hunt or fish on were the St. Joe River and then the Coeur d'Alene River, were the ones he took me on at least. Yeah. So, and so we'd drive probably an hour from Coeur d'Alene, which is where he lived. Were those so, successful trips? Um, he caught a lot of fish. I didn't. <laughs> I, I was I, I was working on my, right. my craft still. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. It was fun to go hiking and. There's a lot of like really good uh, fly fishing rivers in eastern Idaho too, right? Like the uh, what is it like? Uh, I mean, there's the Snake, right, and the Blackfoot. Yeah, I didn't ever fish any of them, but I, uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't know exactly yeah. about those. I, those I are like, a little further south. I would like to go fly oh, yeah. down to Lower Forty Eight and fish somewhere brand new. Oh yeah, that'd be tons of fun. Yeah, somewhere in Montana or Idaho, and just like even to just get a guide and like go float it you know drift yeah. boat and float down a couple of those cool old rivers mm-hmm. well yeah. i've never been on a guided trip so oh yeah be, it's pretty nice dude <laughs> that would be tons of fun to do that you yeah. know a lot of guides you should just give them a little give them a ten dollar bill i'm sure they i mean ben took me over. out when he was a guide but it's different yeah, yeah. i'm not turning it on for you <laughs> I mean, we had some successful days, though. Oh, yeah, dude. <laughs> Eric and I always joke about this time. We went out, and we're, we're just like, well, you know, there's this new trout spot I want to try. And this these are uh, sea trout, so it's like in the ocean. And uh, it's this big creek, and uh, there was like a little oyster bank ledge and a point at this grass point. And we're like, well, let's try right there. It was ridiculous. I mean, it was like we, were, we weren't fly fishing. We were fishing with like a these uh basically it was like a cork with like a 18 inch leader underneath and an artificial shrimp it's mm-hmm. called a popping cork the voodoo yeah the, yeah these voodoo shrimp yeah this episode brought to you by voodoo shrimp <laughs> yeah. i wish yeah those things they're kind of expensive i think they're like seven dollars eight dollars for two of them oh wow but uh dude they, they are, worked well yeah this day dude we were throwing i mean we were we were just talking you know and, and uh, because it's it wasn't like you know still there was some wind. I mean, it wasn't crazy, but so your cork was kind of moving around a little bit. Yeah. So keep going. And we would we would cast it out, you know, maybe like like 25, 30 yards out there, like bit, pretty long cast and put it out there and uh, and then look at each other or get a drink out the cooler or something. And then we'd look back and be like, do you see Do you see the cork? Just set the hook. And we'd both <laughs> double up every time. It was like, wow. Yeah, wow. we were doubling up so much that day. Yeah. And we were keeping, you know, at the time, uh, this was a few years ago. They actually have like a weird trout kill down there where like the, uh, a really cold weather killed like thousands of trout. And so uh, after that, I stopped keeping trout. But uh, then there was just so keeping many. Track? What? I think you said I stopped keeping trout. No, I stopped keeping trout. I stopped uh, oh. keeping them to eat because they because they had suffered, you know, like, you know, the population had dropped so much. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that day we were literally throwing keepers back left and right because we were like getting close to our limit and we we're just trying to catch good size ones of course it wasn't that fun that night when we were cleaning like 30 fish oh yeah that's a lot of work yeah but we did a huge fish fry oh, yeah. and your dad what did you oh your dad caught a flounder or something or did you catch that so did we had a flounder that someone caught yeah i think mitch caught it oh yeah that's right it, they're okay i guess they're kind of like the tofu of fish i think flounders. i don't know i like flounder, flounder. yeah 
Flounders. It only someone not only someone it. not from the southeast says flounders. Flounders. I think it's like deer. There's no deers. It's just flounder. Uh, just flounder. Flounder t- is the tofu of fish. <laughs> I don't know, dude. I disagree. It's like halibut. It's just thin. I guess my only experience is I was on a drift boat and we happened to catch a flounder and my crewmate was like, "Hey, let's try and fry this up." And so we did. Mm. And having it side by side with sockeye salmon it was like meh i mean it wasn't bad but it was yeah. just kind of like whatever you seasoned it as right. exactly how it would taste you caught that like bristol bay or yeah something. yeah i wonder I if it know. tastes different yeah it's got to be slightly different i mean yeah the water's a lot different too our water's like all muddy and i don't know it probably is a, a lot different anyways yeah we had some good days but yeah when you go fishing with a guide it's like uh one you don't know them and they've they've basically rehearsed their like eight hours worth of dialogue every single day you know so so they've got all these funny things that they say and jokes and you know if you hit a lull they'll crack a joke on you and get you laughing and you know you there's kind of like this built up anticipation for the day and usually you know they're pretty dialed in so they can get you on fish and that's their job is to make you have a good time. So it's pretty fun. Plus, you know, when you're fishing with me and you get tangled, I'm like, okay, well, untangle it, you know, or right. t- tie this on. But they're doing all that for you, yeah. you know, so it's pretty sweet. They unhook the fish, you know, they do everything. So that's pretty good. Well, uh, so you move up to Alaska and uh, tell us about, so you started working. No, Then did you start guiding first before you started flying or? How did what happened next in your voyage? Um, yes, yeah. so I moved up here, started doing some construction and stuff, and then that kind of led me to a couple different hunting camps where I just was kind of like a, I don't know, camp hand. I just helped pack and help build things, and but I was in a hunting camp and around you know guides and guys going out on bear hunts and moose hunts and stuff, and so I was just around, and then I kind of got um, more involved with the actual hunting part of it, and um basically got my assistant guide license so I could legally go out and guide people. Um, I wouldn't call myself uh, that qualified to do some of those guided hunts. Some of them I feel I could definitely do, but other times it's like, oh, man, I need a lot more experience um, to call myself a hunting guide. Right. Um, but, yeah, so I did a little bit of that, you know, had to have a couple memories some fond some not so much yeah did you ever have a moment where you're just like you had no idea what to do next but you just had to make it look like you had an idea of what to do next um or were you always honest you know just like ah, i don't know what to do i don't think you ever want to admit <laughs> that when you're in charge right when you're like making somebody's dinner like mm-hmm. ah, i don't know what to do that yeah that could, right, creates yeah. a bad atmosphere yeah. i feel like that's anything professional life if you're mm-hmm. a pilot you know yeah, ladies and gentlemen, I, I don't really know what to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is your captain speaking. Uh, we're did you straight. have those moments, yeah. or did you always kind of feel like you knew what to do? I think um, there are certain finer tune moments where it's like, oh, I wish I knew how to, you know, knew this river a little better to where I knew if I could go another, you know, twelve bends up the stream or up the river yeah. if there was a nice opening to call a moose in on or something like that, mm-hmm. but. I think something about being in that position too just gives you some confidence. You know, I don't. I feel like you don't really hit many of those. Like, wow, I really just have no idea what to do right now. You know, I feel like if it's just super unsuccessful and you're not 
really seeing anything or having any success, I'd be like, okay, I don't know what to do at this yeah, point. Yeah, if you're like a fishing guide and you're guiding and it's been like six hours and you can't, you know, you haven't found a fish yet and it's been really slow, I think like the, the you should probably just come guide in Alaska. <laughs> That'll boost your confidence. Yeah. Yeah, I I would say I mean, in order to get your assistant guide license, you have to just you have to be out enough to where right. you're decently confident yeah. just kind of doing it. Just taking it to the next level when you're getting paid to specifically to do that thing. You want to mm-hmm. provide a good a good experience for the client, obviously. And most of the clients understand that you are hunting. It's not like a, you're walking into a fenced area and like picking, picking one, one out. Yeah. yeah. So that part is helpful too. It's, I mean it is an experience, you know, hunting yeah. in Alaska is crazy. It's unlike many other places of the world. So do you have any good stories from that point in your life? Um, do you have any really like clients that just tested your patience? Yeah, I would say I didn't, I mean, I didn't guide that many clients. I was more kind of the backup guide on more hunts than okay. I was the primary. But one of the times I was the only guide on the hunt, I had a uh, to this day, he's semi well known around the hunting camp, and mm-hmm. lots of other guys talk about him like, "Oh, poor Levi, he had to go out with this guy." And I was with him for like ten days, mm. and it was like the worst, the worst bear season in the history of everyone oh, could man. remember. All the older guys were like, like, "Man, this was is this horrible." Your first yeah, this hunt was as the primary guide. I th- um either my first or second, I can't remember. Okay, and yeah, it, it was, but this guy was. Probably an eight-year-old, a uh, twelve-year-old, and a thirty-year-old's body, and and he had his dad with him too, even to make things worse. So this thirty-year-old guy, who his parents paid for everything, and he basically just had enough money to pay for this hunt. So yeah, it was it was an interesting experience. He, one point, his dad brought him toilet paper while he was out trying to go to the bathroom. That's how uh, the quality of yeah right. is interesting. So. Imagine trying to go hunting with somebody like yeah. that for 10 days. It's so. just complaining the whole time. and We saw some cool stuff, too. We didn't get a bear, which is unfortunate, but we saw some really cool stuff. I practically fed a fox out of my hand and oh, wow. just lots of diff- saw some like killer whales while we were in a boat. That was a little, oh, that's legit. Yeah, a little wow. sketchy, but yeah, at least I think they're killer whales. Maybe there's a Loch Ness monster or something. I don't know. <laughs> so at what point did you decide, okay, now I think I want to fly for a living? About the time I was going to the hunting camps, obviously you have to fly to most of the camps, so um, at least here in Alaska. And so I was around small bush plains, and I was like, man, I kind of like this. And so then I got married in 2016, and I already had I'd got my private pilot's license before that just because it, I thought it was cool, and I lived in Bush, Alaska, and the only way to get there was via plane. So it just kind of made sense to get mm-hmm. um, a pilot's license. Tell and, us about that. Where did you get it uh part 61 um yeah so then i just did it did it on my own i ended up actually buying a plane part of a plane um found an instructor at my plane it's a j3 i believe it's a 1943 model um and we rebuilt some things on it that were broken or not broken but we wanted to refurbish and stuff and then i found an instructor who would fly in it with me which it's a little bit harder to find an instructor to fly in that plane because it's what they call a tandem which is front and back and so the instructor has to sit in the back which is a little nerve-wracking it's you know you're just a little you can't see any see everything as well so um but i was able to find an instructor and do that and 
I would say it was a cool experience. It's a lot of work to get your license. It's, it only takes 40 hours of flight time, but it feels like a lot more just because mm-hmm. there's just so many things that always come up. So, yeah, it was it was a cool experience. Had a couple issues, had to get some maintenance things fixed, and had a one time I was flying. It was actually my first cross-country with this instructor. I can't believe he kept flying with me, actually. <laughs> but we we take off at our airport. Sold out, and we were going to fly down to Homer. And we, I don't know, we're probably 10 minutes out of the airport. And, you know, I think I'd climbed up to 1,500 or 2,000 feet. And we're just, just barely getting to the point where we're settling into our 45 minute flight down to Homer or whatever. And all of a sudden, we're just putting along. And then my power just goes. And as a student pilot, you're pretty used to your instructor like pulling the power and being like, all right, it's an emergency. Where are you going to land? You know. Like, tell me, you know, and so I, was, I just assumed he's behind me, so I can't see him. I just assumed he pulled the throttle and wanted me to, you know, practice my emergency. You were just like, okay. Yeah, so <laughs> that's exactly what I did. I was like, oh, okay, man. well, I'm gonna, I'd probably land on this lake up here. It's the wintertime, so they're all frozen. And, you know, I'm going through all the things I'm supposed to do with, you know, simulated emergency. So it hadn't crossed your mind at all? That no, that was, it was that. Okay. And then he's like, did you do that? And I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> And so I'm like, no. And he's like, all right, you just turn around. You fly the plane. I'm going to work on the throttle. So he's pump, you know, messing with the throttle. And then finally he pumps it a couple of times and we get full throttle back. And so he's like, just keep climbing and turn towards the airport and just keep climbing. So we did that all the way back to the airport. Um, and it turns out my throttle cable, um, I don't know how to explain it, uh, in a, in a good way, I guess. Malfunctioned. Yeah, the throttle cable malfunctioned, I guess. So we had to have some maintenance guys look at that. And to me, I was like, it was my own plane. So I don't know. To me, I props to that instructor for sticking with it yeah. with me and through a little scare like that or you know, a couple yeah. different things like that. And Well, the truth is, you know, I mean, the, he probably saw how you responded to it. He knows the problem's fixed because you got it fixed, you know, so. Yeah. He's probably like, okay, good. I mean, that's real world experience. I should never tell this story and i'm gonna tell because one day um, this is gonna come up in an interview i can just tell <laughs> i'll be like all right thanks for interviewing with southwest so we listened to this double hall podcast we dug up the archives and we heard you tell the story but hopefully uh there's some redemption in this my uh first night cross country we uh i was trying to get my license done like pretty quick uh and because what we were moving up here. So I was flying a ton to the point where the airport I was flying at was about an hour's drive from my house. So I was taking a backpack full of clothes and like shampoo and stuff and just going and sleeping at the airport for like two nights in a row, like flying all day and then flying at night or early in the morning before sun up to get nighttime. So then my first night cross country. Where were you staying? At the airport. There was like an apartment in our hangar with like uh-huh. a like a big couch so for anyone who rented out that space you got to stay in there yeah so i keep my plane in a like a shared hangar and it's got like a dozen planes in it so on one side it's got like an office that uh the guy who rents it out the, the instructor he, he, it's like a flight school but you don't have to be part of the flight school to rent the hangar uh he's got an office on one side and then on the other side he's got like a kitchen a bathroom with a shower and uh, like a living room with like a big dining room table to flight plan on and then like a, a couch and a couple chairs and a TV and, you know, DVD player and stuff. It's a pretty sweet setup, but it's, um, 
it, there's a lot of good guys there that keep their plane and gals that keep their planes there. And, uh, we like have ping pong tournaments and all kinds of stuff, cookouts once a month. So it was a pretty cool place, but I would just sleep on the couch there. But anyways, so we fly for like two hours during the day and I did some solo stuff. And then I, uh, he said, uh, check the oil while I go inside and do something. I said, okay. So I checked the oil and it was at like three quarts. The, uh, the manual says between two quarts minimum and eight quarts maximum, which is like a ridiculously big window. Yeah, big <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, as a student pilot was just like, Oh, three quarts. I'm in, I'm in the window. And, uh, so he said, did you check the oil? I said, yep. And then we took off and started flying and sunset, you know, we circle around We're uh, we're headed over this river and we're getting, uh, towards the, the airport. We're going to go do our takeoffs and landings at Sumter in uh, South Carolina. So we're, you know, probably about halfway there and we've got our flashlights in the cockpit looking around and he kind of starts focusing in on the oil pressure gauge oh no which is like still in the green but just kind of like bouncing on the bottom end and it's it's never done that and he goes is it ever uh you ever noticed that bouncing before and i was like no and uh you know all this doubt is starting to creep into my mind like what if i needed more oil than this you know yeah and uh it's it's bouncing back and forth and stuff and not looking very good, you know. I mean, it, it's in the green, but it, it it was concerning. And then he goes, you check the oil, right? I said, yeah. He goes, how many uh, quarts were you? I said, three. He said, how, what's the minimum? I said, two. He's like, <laughs> starts cussing me out in the plane, you know. He's just like, you gotta be blooped, you know, just going off. And I was like, I was so, I mean, just start getting so nervous, you know. He's like, you got oil in the plane? I was like, yeah, I have two quarts. He's like this is stupid. I mean, just just got so mad at me, you know, but I mean, he, it wasn't like he was being a jerk or anything. Right. He was just like, like, justified anger. He was just like, this was so dumb, but I mean, it was a good learning experience because I mean, you know, you can drive cars and, you know, know about mechanics and stuff. But then when you put yourself like under an instructor like that and you're just kind of like, you get to a point where like, man, I know nothing, Yeah. you know? And so you're just so dependent on whatever they say. Right. And you don't, you're not really thinking for yourself at that point. And so it was a good learning experience and it was a good like flight training experience because we had to divert to a smaller airport and actually like, like go find it in the dark, like no city lights or anything around, just go find it in the moonlight and flip on the lights and, um, land there and stop, shut down, add oil. Then we took off again and he was just like, you know, you're an idiot. He <laughs> said, look at it. It's just sitting in the green now, right in the middle. I mean, he, we joked around a lot. I mean, half the time in the plane, I, I was calling him old and fat and ugly and he was, <laughs> you know, cussing me out and stuff. So, you know, we have a good relationship. Good. Still. It was a good learning environment. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I like to be, uh, I like to, to learn in a kind of a rough environment. Anyways. Old school. Yeah. So you got your private and then started getting, working on your commercial. Yeah, so then I so I did the, my private part 61 on my own um and I remember the first day I got my license or not the first day I got my license but the first flight I did after I got my license I went to leave the airport and I was going to go fly somewhere and and all of a sudden I was like do I need to ask anybody like I felt like I should like tell somebody and make sure I was allowed to I was like no I mean I'm certified 
It's like, okay, wow. (laughs) This is a big, it's a lot to take on. So then I realized like, okay, I want a full picture. I don't want to just like barely scrape by. I don't want to be certified, but not qualified as the old adage goes. Um, So then I decided I would go to a 141 school, which is basically like a school that has a curriculum and sends it to the FAA and the FAA approves it. And then it becomes a 141 school. Basically, you know, it's official. That's kind of what it sort of means, I guess. There's a lot less freedom. You have to like yeah. stick to the curriculum. Yeah, the training curriculum. And, and I mean, there's some perks to it. and But yeah, it is a little bit more intensive. And in some ways, there's more red tape. And I mean, there's pros and cons to that type of option. But I decided I wanted to see that side of it since I'd already seen the other side. So then I went to UAA and got into their piloting program. And How I, long was that? Um, so I chose the associate program, which is a two-year uh, program. So that, in order to graduate, I had to get my instrument, my commercial, and you know take a bunch of other college classes and stuff. But those were the two flight requirements I had to get. They had a bachelor program if I wanted to, but I didn't want to be invested or spend that much time doing it. So what would have the bachelor's program gotten you? Um, I think they had a multi that I. Uh, was part of the program and then a CFI which is part of the program as well those I think those were both requirements for graduating with the bachelor's at the time so I wasn't um, super intrigued or I didn't really want to spend money at that school to get my multi and so I was one of the reasons I decided not to go to the not enroll in the four-year program and so then I got done with I got my instrument commercial I say, and then just like it happened just like that, but it was, you know, all this effort and years of red tape. How would you rate your experience at the UAA's aviation program? And UAA is University of Alaska Anchorage. Yeah, yeah. Good call. Everybody else. Um, I would say it was good. I got what I wanted. I had seen the do-it-yourself side of Alaska flying, and that involves some gray areas of trying to make things happen when you get stuck in places or like you don't have a lot of options or, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the, a, a house owner working on his house himself instead of hiring a, an expensive contractor to do it. It's kind of like that. And sure. then UAA is the complete exact opposite of having 12 people looking over your shoulder, telling you whether or not you can go or not go or do things or not do things. And so in some ways I'd, some of those experiences were negative, but it enabled me to get a full picture of the whole industry, I would say, or a better picture of the industry. Did so, you do a lot of flight simulation, flight simulators? Um, they do have a flight simulator, um, which is super useful for instrument flying. And so I did some of that, and it was cheaper than plane, so I basically used as much of that as I could. And that counts as hours for you? Um, it counts in certain areas. It doesn't count for your total time which is the big factor as a pilot of how much total time you have flying. It's not included in that, but it counts towards simulated instrument time, which is a factor for certain types of jobs you're wanting to get or if, yeah. And it's useful knowledge to have either which way. Was it all pretty like helpful? Did you like all your instructors and everything? And was it weird kind of being in like a classroom setting like that? Um, Well, I mean, I guess the classroom setting, most of it was just, like any other college class, all the classes, I mean, just the same. Okay. The flight instruction part was just you one-on-one with your instructor. And it was probably really similar to any 
one-on-one with, with any instructor. Was there a lot of like competition within the class? Like who was doing the best? Like when you went up with the instructor or is there, was it all kind of like separate and individual? I don't know. I was just always the best. So I just, no, <laughs> I'm just nice. kidding. No, I, I would, I would say there's, I mean, occasionally a story would pop up about somebody screwing up or, I mean, basically if you didn't right. screw up or then you probably didn't, it didn't really ever pop up. Yeah. They were, yeah. The instructors are pretty good. They're all younger students or they're basically just kids ahead of me in the program because they would get their CFI their oh, okay. third or fourth year. They maybe huh. were just about to graduate. So in some ways it was good. Not all huh. the instructors were like that. I like that. Yeah, there, there's pros and cons to having young instructors. I guess they can relate to you better, but I feel like yeah. I, I feel like I would kind of doubt their credibility since they've you know been flying well, for they, like two minutes longer than I had. Yeah, they know all like the, by the book stuff. Right, yeah. but like real life experience. Yeah, something well, they wouldn't have. Yeah, I think so. A lot of the things in order to get your licenses, you have to perform certain maneuvers within certain. Uh, like they have to be within certain parameters. So new instructors remember those maneuvers really well and the ways to teach new kids how to do those. So that that part's helpful being a new instructor. But like you said, an old instructor has all the wisdom of years right. of experience. Yeah. And so I did actually have a, one or two instructors that were older. So that was kind of cool. So you had multiple instructors? Yeah, I think okay. I had, well, I had like probably two primary instructors and then I'd pick up I flew with other instructors trying to get extra time in certain circumstances if my in- main instructors were busy or were previously scheduled. And I mean, that was the harder, hardest part, I think, about the school was having all the other pilots trying to hmm. schedule with planes yeah. and instructors. And then you have weather and it's just a lot of scheduling type of stuff. So sometimes you just kind of had to take what you could get kind of thing. Right. So then I did all that and... I was done, got my commercial, my instrument, and graduated, got my fancy dancy piece of paper. Super cool. Mm-hmm. And then I was in what I like to call the graveyard of flight time, which means <laughs> you have your commercial <laughs> license and you legally can get paid to fly now. Woohoo. But nobody wants to Nobody wants to hire you and you have hardly any flight time and the only way to like build flight time is to like go rent a plane and spend tons and tons more money right after you just got done spending all that money so, so when you're when you're building hours like do you have to be in a certain type of airplane for them to count towards like your commercial hours or is it just you can fly like your j3 and out count towards your total hours um so um any plane you're flying counts towards your total time okay however there are certain breakdowns of different types of flight time, like different aircraft. So if you fly a high-performance aircraft, that is helpful. Well, I guess you don't really log that time differently. If you fly a turbine aircraft, you log that time differently. So that's like a whole separate category. Like people look right. at how much turbine time you have or how much multi-engine time do you have. Those are important categories within your total time. I feel like I'll, most people, though, before they get their first flying job, average people, don't have any turbine time and don't huh. have any yeah. okay. multi-time. So you could get like 500 hours just all in your J3 yep. and that would be good. That's yeah. That okay. But if the they look at it, if they look at it, there are certain types of flying that look better on paper. So like if I did 500 hours in a pattern or 500 hours like in one little area and uh like no no instrument at all, mm-hmm. you know, then then Levi shows up and he's done 500 hours 
with 300 hours of long cross country and flying all different kinds of airports. And he's got 75 hours of real instrument time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're going to hire him, right? You know, yeah. unless you look at our faces and then you would definitely yeah. hire me. Ben the, looks good. <laughs> yeah. So what's the what's 250 hours? Isn't that some threshold? Um, so there's two ways to get your commercial. You can get it through a part 141 school, which lets you get your commercial license with any amount of hours, basically because you've gone through an approved curriculum. Right. But if you don't go through a 141 school, you have to have 250 hours to get your commercial license. Huh. The theory, I think, behind that is trying to ensure you know enough to be paid to fly. So right. if you don't go through a school with an improved curriculum, they're kind of like, all right, well, you at least have to fly this much to maybe get around the block once or twice so right. you know, wow. know what's up, I guess. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so I think I got my commercial with just under 250 because I had flown a little bit on my own outside of the school. So, But I think most students who go through a 141 school graduate with 180 or 210 hours or whatever. So, so for people who don't really know anything about aviation, why can you not get hired unless you have 500 hours? Um, so, well, you tricky question. <laughs> I guess you to fly for a Part 135 air taxi, you have to have 500 hours to be the pilot in command, which most 135 air taxis operate with one pilot crews. So therefore, you're going to be the pilot in command. So federal regulation says that you have to have 500 hours. And I think that is one of the more common jobs for new pilots is a 135 air taxi. Sometimes if you get your multi and you go to a a, big, a different air taxi that's a little bigger and they will hire you as a second in command pilot. And so you can have less than 500 mm-hmm. hours and you're just kind of like the, you're just along for the ride and learning and they, you know, you do certain little tasks, but you're right. not the one in charge. Right. So then that's the next step of different flight time. That's good or, or better or worse. So pilot in command time is obviously much more valuable than second in command time because right. it means you're the primary decision maker so mm. is once you get your commercial and you have 250 hours is like the next step you know flying right seat and not being the pilot in command but still getting a job as like a co-pilot or would you rather just get all your hours in your own plane 500 and then become pilot in command and get a job that way um well i chose the 500 and get a job that way i in alaska the companies that had the second in command options i didn't really want to work for so Mm. i decided i wanted to work for a company that are those companies just like a lot more traveling a lot more inconvenient schedules or um sometimes and then some of the you know they want you to base in different places for like a two on two off schedule farther away from where i wanted to be and then you know just the company cultures at the time the cultures that didn't have a super positive feel if it tells you anything it no longer exists, that company. <laughs> yeah, some of yeah, those companies. So that'll yeah. tell you something. Yeah. So that's why. So I just basically I just rented a plane and flew my plane and rented a plane if I needed for different types of experience and hmm. flew as much as I could and however much money I could save up for chunks of flying until I got to the yeah. hours I needed. So I guess if you're wanting to become a commercial pilot and get you know, up to 500 hours and just do it by yourself that way then it totally makes sense to buy your own plane oh yeah yeah because i i mean Dude, if you think about spending it an insane amount of money renting yeah. planes if you didn't have your own yeah i mean 200 hours 
is a lot of flight time. That's probably, I mean, so just you do the math. However yeah. much I would say an average plane rental is probably eighty to one hundred and twenty for the the cheapest options. Right. And that's per hour. So that's a lot of money. Yeah, that's crazy. So yeah. You're talking like twenty grand. Just like that. Oh, and then you have all your hours, but you. I mean, you have I mean that's still cheaper, you know, than buying a plane sometimes. Well. Yeah, but then that's only two hundred hours. Two hundred hours. I guess, but you you lose all that money too. It's like if you buy a plane, you you know, you're building equity, and then you can sell it, and you know, get some of your money back. Yeah. So that's what you're doing. There are pros and cons though. Like if you choose to rent, you don't have to worry about your radio breaking or you know putting new tires on or you know, all of a sudden you spend all this money on a plane and. They find, uh, oh, there's metal in your oil. Let's uh, look at the engine. Oh, you have a bad cylinder. You know, so then you're not flying and you're, you know, paying yeah. a ton of money. But I would say if you're the type of person who thinks about changing your own tires on your car or changing your own oil, or you'd rather build a shelf than buy a shelf, buy a plane. Yeah. If yeah. you're not, if you're the person who's like, I just want to change, have somebody else change my oil, do, I just want somebody else to do that stuff. And maybe you're better off renting a plane because you don't have to deal with the hassles of owning a plane. Sure. Or if you have a ton of money. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just buy a plane and just hire a mechanic yeah. to do everything. I mean, you basically do have to hire a mechanic <laughs> to do everything anyways. But, yeah. you know, what Levi means is you can find a mechanic who will let you help them. Yeah, you know, sign off on something. And save time, yeah. you know. So, like, hey, do you want me to take all this stuff off the plane so you don't have to do that and you can just come in and look at that it? That saves and, you money. Yeah, because okay. it saves them time. So you're saving right. an hourly rate. So once you got your all your hours, how did you finally get a pilot job? Well, I have a unique experience because I knew the owners of the company I started working for. And I had already started working for them a, a year and a half before I flew for them. So they got to know me, you know, who I am and the type of worker I am. So that helped make them feel more comfortable with my personality and my work ethic. Mm-hmm. So normally, uh, straight out of, you know, right at 500 hours, companies don't really love to hire you because you're you just are so young still. Yeah, it just seems like incredibly difficult to get a pilot job. Well, yeah. there are it's other... like 250 hours. Okay, now 500, but still not good enough. Yeah, so. you really have to like you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But there are other jobs out there though. Like you can become an instructor at 250 hours and find work pretty easily. You can. Yeah, but like they'll like fly, fly skydivers. You can. Oh, okay, I guess. I mean, aerial survey, pipeline pilots. Sometimes you can. Yeah, there there are some options. I guess if you're, is it because you're flying passengers? Is that the difference? Um, well, it's one thirty-five. Yeah, so I mean, I I guess some companies, some one thirty-five companies, will hire newer, younger pilots and just kind of make them fly freight, and they don't ever they basically oh, okay. get the worst planes in the fleet or whatever right. and they just fly freight and they don't ever hire passengers or fly passengers and if you survive long enough then yeah then you get an upgrade <laughs> there are some companies who do that i started flying passengers and freight all at the same time so so how long have you been flying professionally now professionally let's see i think just over two years what do you think so far two and a half years two and a half years um, I think it's great. I, I love it. I always tell my passengers as we're flying, it's usually on sunny days when I tell them this story, but it's like there are days where you're flying and you're like, man, I can't believe I get to fly this fly and I get to pay, I get paid to fly. Yeah. And 
then there are days where you're flying and you're like wow i do not get paid enough to try to fly through this <laughs> right yeah and so what's been like your sketchiest moment so far oh my sketchiest moments um i don't know i, I mean i guess i haven't had any moments where i was like wow i narrowly escaped death <laughs> right um well good yeah that's that's always nice um I've had a flat tire before. Like I've noticed I had a flat in the air, which was fortunate and made it a lot easier. I was prepared for right. landing with it. I actually had my child on the plane at the time. That was a little mm, that makes little it a little nerve wracking. Yeah. yeah. Um I'd, I was definitely invested in, in that landing. Yeah. Um it worked out fine. Everything was worked out just fine and landed in slowly in a controlled way. Went off the left side of the runway and to like a little taxiway area where I could uh, get hooked up with a. You just entire, landed on one plane and just stayed like that. One wheel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Basically, I landed wheel. with it was my left main tire that was flat, so I landed, and using the ailerons, that's a flight control, um, kept all as much weight as as long as I could on my right tire until at the last minute, finally my wings weren't creating any lift and I had no ailerons, had no more control, and then my left tire that was flat landed on the ground. It creates drag and it wants to pull me to the left. Right. So I use right brake and right rudder and, you know, just kind of slowed down and then kind of was it forced me to pull off to the left of the runway. So then I pulled off to the left and I knew I had a flat tire. So I'd been able to radio so I could ha have a truck to help be there to, it was like standing by just to unload all the stuff. And then we were able to put a new tire on and tow it and get it all fixed up right. So was it, um, was it weird flying? Like either in, you know, just total clouds or in the night, like your first time. Um, I would say, yeah, the first time you fly into clouds is definitely a new experience. Mm -hmm. um, so it's cool get having going through an instrument, you know, having an instrument rating right. is really helpful because you've hopefully at least got a chance to fly into the clouds because your body starts wanting to tell you to you know you're you're falling to the right your plane's diving down to the right and in reality you're climbing up and to the left and so learning to trust your instruments and not your the way your body feels it's, yeah it's, it's almost like you're you've learned to walk your whole life and then all of a sudden you can't trust how your body feels when you're trying to walk and yeah. you just have to mentally repurpose your mind so that's weird so eric this will blow your mind in your private pilot training you do something called uh, upset recovery work and um, I have kind of an interesting story about this. So basically, you wear these things called foggles. Some people wear a hood, you know, or glasses with like uh, some grayed out area. So all you can see is the uh, the panel. And I guess you could cheat and kind of like, you know, tilt your head up and see where you are. Mm -hmm. But, you you know, you should be wanting to learn to, right. to do it and, you know, in a safe environment. So you really try to only see the panel and don't, don't look outside at all. And... Um, so you'll do that and you'll fly straight on this heading and then you'll turn to this heading and then you'll try to do this maneuver and stuff and all that. And uh, and then eventually what will happen is you'll take your hands off the controls. Your instructor's got the controls. You just look down and close your eyes and he'll just do crazy stuff. Just, just flying around in circles and switch back, turn, I mean, turning this way and then you're pulling this way. and it's, It just feels like he just gets you where you're feeling like you're just spinning and falling and doing all this crazy stuff. He's speeding up and slowing down and he trims the plane weird, does all this stuff. And, um, and then he'll just be like, all right, your controls. And then you just have to take it back and look at the instruments and get back to straight and level. 
and you might be diving and in, in a turn almost a spin like a very slow control not a spin but kind of a spiral or you might be like literally about to stall like power on you're like 35 miles an hour and you're just like about if you make the wrong move you're spinning you know Mm -hmm. and so and you have to just very controlled just get it right back to straight and level full throttle and cruise and um that was all good but then my uh examiner when he did it i just wasn't expecting it and uh he he just put it like insanely out of trim and then he gave it full flaps which was just i my instructor had never done that and so then you're adding full power but then you're like the plane just feels so weird because you don't know that there's flaps and you're just like it's just wanting to climb so hard and you're like what is going on (laughs) then i finally realized he had put uh flaps in so to get rid of those and stuff but that's pretty you know some people it affects more than others but but that'll that'll show you a lot well so just imagine your instructor doing all that and you put your head down and then you look up and you have to assess the situation that's kind of the what your body does on its own when you first fly into a cloud is your body just starts like freaking out and it's like, ah, ah. Right. and then you have to calm down, look at your instruments and reset yourself and be like, all right, okay, I'm in control. Yeah. 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 That would freak me out. Is it? Yeah. I would say it's, it's interesting flying passengers and seeing different people, you know, what well, you'll be flying along and you'll experience maybe like a little tiny little bump and, some people just freak out yeah. and it's like, no, no, relax. Trust me. It's not a big deal. Right. Yeah. I have a lot of family. I mean, even I grew up terrified, uh, of flying like the first commercial flight I went on, I flew to Puerto Rico from South Carolina and it was like a huge plane. And I, I mean, I don't even remember, but it probably like a triple seven or something. It was like three rows of seats and, we got upgraded to first class, Ooh. weirdly, which first flying experience was pretty awesome. And uh, anyways, I was terrified. I mean, we hit a bump and I was just like, oh my gosh, we're going to fall. And I used to, even uh, when, when Katie and I first got married, um, we decided to move up to Alaska. I was like, okay, but I mean, I'm not getting on one of those little planes. I'm just not going to do it <laughs> ever. You know, mm-hmm. now I own one. Yeah. Uh, I was just, I grew up in a family that everyone was like afraid of flying. But now I tell people in my family, you know, uh, the bumps and stuff is just like when you're in a car going down a bumpy road or a dirt road. It's like the same thing, you know? Well, I feel like in the movies, I feel like this is why people freak out when they hit bumps. Because in the movies, when it there's a ton of turbulence, a lot of bumps, it's usually immediately followed by a plane crash. That's true. <laughs> so, and I, I've been in some rough turbulence before. Like, yeah. So it it can be kind of freaky. Yeah. Well, the especially cool- if you're not used to like flying in planes and you don't know that that is just you know like Part of being flying. on a bumpy road in a car. Like the day after I got my uh, private pilot, I took my dad on like a like a forty five minute flight up and down the coast, and um, right off the coast, uh, you know, we had like our wing strut was like halfway up the beach. You know, we're just flying down, you know, like a half a mile off the beach and. Um, it was just super smooth and awesome, just like hands-off flying. And then we turned to go over the land, and there's all these thermals, so it just got super, super bumpy for like 25 minutes. Uh-huh. I mean, we're getting banged around, and finally I was just like, man. And he was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I 
He was like, what do you mean, man? What is that? He's coming over the radio, you know? Yeah. And I was like, it's just bumpy. He's like, is that a problem? I was like, you're about to die. That's I was so like, funny because no. I can totally see that happen. Yeah. I can totally hear your dad saying that. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I was like, no, dad, it's just bumpy. He's like, don't say that. You're the pilot. You can't say man. <laughs> I was like, you need to relax. That's like my dad. I took him flying one time. And I mean, a pretty normal thing flying a plane is, you know, you fly a plane and you want to practice stalls. So, you you know, if the plane is going to stall, does accidentally stall, you know how yeah, to recover from it. That's that's sketchy. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. Being, at all. But it's, not like not being a pilot and being with another pilot who's like doing that is sketchy. Well, maybe. I don't know. He thought it was because we we're flying a plane. I was like, oh, I think I'm going to practice some stalls. And man, he was like, no, 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 don't do, don't do stalls, not stalls. It's like the end of the world. I was yeah. like, no, well, I think because people, I think, uh, you know, people that don't fly think that stalls are like you fly straight up until the motor quits, like, and that's, and it. then you're just spiraling down, and yeah. Yeah, flames are death. coming out of the co- you know, yeah. the, the cowling. A couple bullet holes, maybe. Well, my first, I had an instructor for like ten hours in a 172. Then I jumped to another instructor. Um, and flew like an hour in a Luscombe and then and then finally in a 170. And I'm flying the 170 with this guy. And he's like, all right, go ahead and climb up to, say, 4,000 feet. So we climb up there. And he's like, all right, uh, you know, go ahead and do a power off stall. And I was like, okay. Um, and I'd like never done one before, you know. Uh-huh. He's like, go ahead and pull the power back. So I pulled the power back. And we're just like, I'm just staying level, you know. But now we're just descending. He's like, all right, pitch up. I'm like pitching up. And he's like, keeps looking over me. He goes, you ever done this? I was like, no. He's like, well, crap. He's like, give me the control, my controls, full throttle. And, and then we talk about it. And he was like, I'm sorry. I thought you uh, you had done it before. And I was like, no, but I was just going to like let you talk me through it. You know? Talk me to the ground. Exactly. But uh, but yeah. All right, guys. So let's talk about your uh, your moose hunt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so Eric, was, why don't you tell us about it? So it was supposed to be me. Levi, Caleb, and Jordan, which is another one of my brother-in-laws, um, did not work out that way. So we fly out to Port Osworth. It's kind of like our base camp. And we're hunting around that area. So 9 Alpha or something like that. Was it's in Unit 9. Uh, I think it's Alpha. I didn't have a tag. I just brought my binos. Um. So we get out there immediately when we land, because me, me and you flew out there together, right? No, that was you and I was out there. I'd been there a day or something. You oh, was and that Caleb me and Caleb? Okay, yeah. that's right. So yeah, Jordan and Levi were already out there, and me and Caleb flew out there. And I was expecting, you know, have a nice chill night, you know, in the cabin, and then you know wake up the next day with a nice plan. Yeah, a good. Oh, hold on. Wow, it's so embarrassing. Caleb Davis. Speak of the devil. Wow. Speak of the devil. You're on the podcast, the podcast right now. Again. Making the podcast we're, again. We're talking about how you abandoned me and Levi on our moose hunt. The two rookie moose hunters. I abandoned you. I kind of did, I guess. But Go out into the snow in the cold and find us a moose. <laughs> this is hilarious Eric. that you just called me because this couldn't have been a more perfect time. I know. We're we're literally just starting to talk about the moose hunt, and and you're landing in Port Osworth. So I yeah yeah yeah. So we get out there. Me and Caleb get out there, and then try to just try to tell this whole story with Caleb on the line. 
I don't know if it'll like uh, echo or anything. I feel like I'm getting a lot of feedback. Yeah, from I think it'd be bad. I, you just FaceTimed me, so I was calling you back. Yo, that was a while while ago. You ready to rip some lips in the morning? Yeah, dude. Dude, I'm Obviously. so I'm so stoked that you're coming. I know it would have been lame if it was just you and Eric. I know, totally yeah. lame. Dude, I probably wouldn't have even gone. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably just skipped. <laughs> All right, cool. dude. Well, I think we're gonna eight. leave it like eight thirty. Hey, you're gonna edit all this out, right? No, dude, probably this is not. Definitely this staying. Is gold podcast gold, okay. right? Well, hey, providential. Pick, pick me up from um, my my in laws' house. Okay, you still gonna wear those pink waiters? Yeah, right. like always. Yeah. <laughs> all right. See you later. Bye. Bye. All right. Anyway, so we get out there. Me and Caleb get out there. We land in Port Allsworth, and then Jordan comes up to the planes like hey you guys ready to go out and hunt and you know like i said i was expecting kind of just to eat dinner first at least at the cabin because we hadn't eaten yet yeah jordan levi and nate had all been spotting right did you go with them yeah okay so they're up in the plane looking for moose that day like while we were headed to port Osler. so they had already seen well i'll let you tell that part since you were there um yeah we so basically we oh probably an hour before then we'd gone up flying we actually had like barely landed before you guys from our moose spotting trip oh, okay. you guys were flying in and we were out spotting moose um and so we went out and we didn't have um the success we wanted in the spots we'd wanted the good moose hunting spots um finding moose so generally um well at least moose hunting in a, in the winter you like to f- fly around if you have the option like we have and fly around and try to find a moose. And then you try to find a spot where you can land a, a frozen lake or a flat spot on the tundra or something to where you can land a plane on skis. Or if, um, if it's the lake smooth, uh, frozen over, you can land with wheels on it, but, and land. And then the next day, cause you can't hunt and fly in the same day, the next day, go try and get on the moose and shoot it. Well, so all the spots that we wanted we were hoping to find a moose. We didn't see any moose and the like spots that we knew we could land on or that were good landing spots. But then we found this one spot where is it kind of like a lake down in this hole, sort of. Um, there's trees all around the lake, but then right off the lake, looking straight down, I happened to spot a couple moose, legal shooters. And we were debating on how we could hunt those moose because you couldn't hardly see anywhere in the trees. It was so thick. But they were really close to the lake, which we could land on. And so we were debating that the whole flight back. And so then we had landed and we're putting the plane away and stuff. And um, and then Eric and Caleb land. And that's when Jordan comes over to talk to you. Yeah, so we basically decide that two people need to go out there tonight. That way we can hunt the next day. Um, so they would, they would hopefully still be there in the morning. And then, because we could only we only had enough daylight for one trip to go out there to drop us off, and only two people could fit in the plane we were going out there in. Um, so we spent a little bit of time deciding who's going to go out there, and obviously it was me and Levi who were going to go out there first. So the plan was to drop us off out there with all of our gear and everything. We'd go pick a spot to camp, sleep the night, and then wake up in the morning. Hopefully shoot a couple moves and then Caleb and Jordan would get dropped off. We had a, or Levi had a sat phone, so we would just tell him when we shot one. 
and then they would come and help us scan it out and take it back. So that was the plan. So, like, 20 minutes after I landed in Port Allsworth, me and Levi packed up in the Super Cub and took off. So we get there. We kind of fly around for a little bit. I don't. Did we initially see those same two moose on that lake? Well, no. So the the spot I told, uh, I I pointed out where they were. So we spe- specifically didn't fly over them because we were trying to oh, not spook, we them. spook them. Yeah. Yeah. That was the other thing we were worried about is we didn't. Even if we had more right, daylight, yeah. we didn't want multiple trips going in because the planes flying around it might scare the That's moose right, yeah. and. So we were trying to keep a low profile on the lake. So we didn't fly over those moose because we knew they were already there. And said we flew out different valleys, kind of looked around again, hoping for a better spot. Mm. We almost found a... We, we saw f- a couple. Yeah, we found there was one one or two moose in the spot that would have been way better to try to hunt. Um, but the snow, the pilot, the snow conditions and stuff, were, he wasn't super excited about trying to land right. on the, that spot. It had been kind of a weird winter with freezing and thawing and snowing and not snowing and yeah so then we go back towards the lake yeah so then we land on the lake and get off the plane we walk off the lake i don't know maybe like 20 meters off like the initial wood line off the lake and then make a spot and it's pretty much dark when we i mean dusk when we start setting up the tent by the time we get the tent set up it's completely dark and it's like 4 30 so we get in the tent we're just like what now? Yeah, like, what do we do for the next six hours? Because, you know, we're not really going to fall asleep anytime soon. <laughs> it's more than six hours. Come on. It's like the next 15 hours. Well, yeah, yeah. Until daylight. Like 9.30 the next yeah, morning. True. This is, a, what was it? December? Yeah. It's just for like, Christmas. Like yeah, the 20-something. Like e- it was like some winter solstice, practically. It's like the yeah, shortest yeah, yeah. day of the year. Sheesh. <laughs> yeah, it was like maybe like the 21st or the 20th. Or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So we kind of just hung out in the tent. We cooked some dinner. We played some cards. Levi read a book. And then I I think I just went to sleep at like 8. And he slept for like an hour and a half or two hours and then wakes up. And he's like, what? You're still reading? Well, because like, when I woke up, I was like, for sure, it was like 2 a.m. Because it felt like I had been sleeping for a long time. Yeah. It but was like I an hour and a half. Yeah, I'd only been sleeping for like an hour. Yeah, people. So I was like, you are still reading a book? It's like 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah, and then pe- I looked at my watch. It was like 9.30. I was like, oh. People in the lower 48 uh, that I talk to, they like always want to know about the sunlight, daylight, darkness things. Like, is it always dark? And I'm like, for about 130 days, the sun doesn't come. <laughs> no, uh, you know, but that's the weirdest part is when you're not like in your house because you have yeah. like blackout shades and lights and everything. It's like whatever, you get used to it. But uh, yeah, I remember a, a couple summers ago being in a tent and same thing like it's like we we were in the middle of nowhere in togiak and just like had nothing to do i mean it was daylight but i mean we were just exhausted because we had built this whole camp and it was going to be like a like a semi-permanent seasonal camp for all these guests to come and stay in and stuff so it was a lot of work and um we were pretty drained so it's like 8 30 at night and i go to sleep and in my sleeping bag and then i wake up and it's like 1055 and i'm like looking at my watch trying to figure out if it's 1055 in the morning or like <laughs> if it's 1055 at night you know and it's just like right. s- still daylight and i'm like ah, what is going on i'm, I'm so, so screwed up with the light yeah 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 but anyways so it was yeah it was so in winter it's obviously completely dark so i wish we would have brought more sources of light like a lantern yeah, i forgot or a lantern yeah we- i mean we had headlamps and 
but it would have been really nice to have like a big source of light a freestanding source of light anyway so i ended up sleeping quite a bit so <laughs> like 16 hours <laughs> yeah i slept a lot so uh i didn't sleep very well i don't know about you but it was pretty lumpy um the snow was just pretty lumpy well that was, that was one thing that i will like i made like a list of things that i learned about winter moose hunting i'll, I'll say those at the end but that's like wow. a foreshadowing of one of them. I made my spot better. Remember, you we did. Decided yeah, you did. The night of- I was like, "Oh, I'll be fine," and yeah, I mean, it was okay, but I should have been more prepared, like Levi. So make it through the night <laughs> <laughs> and wake up surprisingly late. It was, I think, it was like eight thirty, which I was not expecting to wake up that late. I was expecting to be up at like, I don't know, wake up at six, considering I went to bed at eight. Um, so, so I got 12 hours, I guess, or 12 and a half hours or something like that. Um, so yeah, we wake up and it's like eight, eight thirty somewhere in there. And it was not like daylight, but it was definitely, we should have probably got up a little bit earlier, yeah, I think. Yeah, for sure. But it was, so it was kind of like dusky if sun's coming up and, you know, you can, you can make out stuff, but not see it super clearly. I go out just to pee and stuff. And then I get out and I kind of, just going to peek out on the lake just for, laughs and giggles and then i look across and i see two moose out there and i had grabbed my binos with me because that was the whole reason i went on this trip so naturally i'm bringing them with me everywhere yeah he's like i wonder how they work in low light yeah yeah <laughs> so i bring them out so i had them with me so i didn't even have to go back in the tent and sure enough it was two bulls um sparring on the far side of the lake wow which um in the unit we're hunting in for december moose hunting basically all you need is an antlered bull and you can shoot it. And so we were like, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And so then you know, Eric was, he had already was kind of waking up, but he hadn't like gotten up yet. And so then I go back to the tent and I'm like, Eric, okay, there's two bulls over there. And we're trying to be quiet because they can hear pretty well. And so then he's getting everything geared up and we're getting ready to go. And by the time we kind of get ready to move out of the tent, we haven't even eaten breakfast or done anything yet. We get out of the tent and are getting ready to, you know, figure out what we're going to do. The two bulls are kind of working their way across the lake towards us. And I don't, I don't know exactly how big the lake was, but I would say it like a half a, mile or it a mile. Was a big lake. Yeah. yeah. It was a, like from our end to the, that far side, it was kind of like a, I want to say like a teardrop type of shape. And we are on the one side of the teardrop and they're on the far other side, you know, so the mm-hmm. longest point away. And they're kind of working towards us, which was great. It was like, oh, yes, they're coming. We might get a shot after all. So Eric kind of moved to this one spot to that was a little bit closer, and he had cover to hopefully maybe get it, like be set up for a shot if they kept coming. I had some concealment. Yeah. And I thought, I was like, this could not have worked out any better. We didn't have to hike for these moose. They came out on the lake like we right wanted. The they didn't scare, we didn't scare them away. Everything's working perfectly as planned. And they're they're just sparring out there, so it's just super cool just watching them yeah. in the first place. You know? It was super cool, yeah. And you could like they were quite a ways away, but every little bit you could hear like a crack of their antlers yeah. hitting each other. It was really cool. That was pretty cool. And and so then they're getting close. They're probably maybe eight hundred yards away now. Probably yeah. And I mean, then, we didn't have a rangefinder, which that was, was another shortcoming. Yeah, another shortfall. That's, on the, we, that's on the list of things you learned. Well, and no, I already knew that. I, we just forgot it. We were just in such a huge rush. Yeah, we didn't even eat dinner there. that night. Yeah. So, anyways. Yeah. So then we're they're like eight hundred yards away, and then a third moose comes out on the lake, like from the spot that they're kind of headed towards, which is closer to us. 
And I don't think this one was a bull. I think it was just, well, if it was, it was super tiny or his antlers had already fallen off. Um, and he kind of like somehow spooks the other two or convinces the other two to like turn around. And then they start going like back the direction, kind of the way they would come. Yeah. And our hopes were just crashing yeah, so, with every step they took. So they went off the lake. So we kind of went back to the tent and kind of made a game plan and decided that we were going to go after them. How did we not decide to eat breakfast first? This That, that is one of the things uh, in my list of <laughs> things I learned. Anyways, so we decided to go after them, which I don't know. I don't know if that was the right call, but I mean, I, I liked it because I just wanted to take action, you know? Yeah. I feel like in winter moose hunts, I, I could totally be wrong. But I feel like you have to sit and kind of wait a lot more because you're so loud when you're moving in the snow and it's sound. Slow. Yes, it's you're slow and loud and sound like travels carries so much farther in the winter. So you, you just spook a whole bunch of moose. So we ended up walking quite a ways, but to no avail. So we decided we were just following their tracks. But Levi, you know, ended up talking sense into me and. There's no way we're going to, because we were just being so loud walking through these trees, and it was just so dense. Yeah, well, after so you we couldn't got even off the see lake. like 10 meters in front of your face. Uh, yeah, it got really dense off, off the lake. So we dude. decided to go back, and we you're, found... You're using the word meters a lot, dude. They're going to start figuring out your actual identity. <laughs> so we ended up, when we were following the tracks, we saw this nice big open clearing. So we decided to go back there, and we found a spot where we could see this big clearing, but also still see the lake. So we ended up just sitting there for a while, and then we kind of moved a little further um, up the lake into a similar spot that had a different clearing, but you could still see the lake, and we sat there for a while. And this whole time, we were kind of communicating with Caleb and Jordan, like telling them, you know, we saw two bulls, but we, you know, we couldn't get close enough to take a shot. We haven't seen anything since, and so we're kind of figuring out what we're going to do, if we're going to stay out another night, or if they're going to pick us up and take us to a new spot. And ultimately, we decided just to walk back and go to a new spot, because I don't know what we why we decided that ultimately, but it, I just feel like it was a really hard spot to hunt moose, because it, the lake was just, like, it was really nice, because if the... I feel like if the lake was smaller, it would have been perfect. If you could like take a shot like across the whole lake, yeah, yeah, and it was within range, it would have been super nice. But the lake was just so big that even if it was, it would have had to have been perfect. The moose would have had to walk out right next to us, and it was like playing the moose lottery: buy a ticket and hope you win it the right. next morning. And if you had to go off the lake, you're just gonna spook them because you're just being so loud. Yeah. So it was a lot harder than I thought it would be. I thought it'd be easy, you know, because if you see if you see one and it runs off, you can just follow the tracks. But before I was out there, I didn't really think about how loud I would be walking in the snow. Um, so we walk back to the campsite, tear everything down, um, and then our pilot comes in and grabs us, and then takes us back to Port Allsworth, and then uh, we were gonna go head out again to do some spotting to get dropped off in a new spot. Um, but we got. Or we came back just just in just time. Just before dark. Yeah. That, that um, so, we, so, yeah. So, we decided to do that the next day. And then we woke up 
and the next like five days we were just weathered in port Osworth. fog to the ground so, yes yeah, so we never got to go back out so we actually only hunted for one day yep and then we were so, weathered in port Osworth for kind of, so kind of if, a bummer if you had stayed one more night there you'd have been there all through christmas yeah we would have been there for a while yeah just I stuck don't, there on that lake because because even when I left Port Allsworth, yeah. I had to leave commercially because, I, like, my father-in-law Nate still couldn't fly us because the, the weather, weather was still so bad. bad. Yeah. So I, I would have been out there even longer than that, probably, or <laughs> both of us would have been. Yeah, it was. We would have like, gotten to spend a lot of good quality time, and yeah. but we would have ran out of food. Uh, maybe we? we. No, you guys would have killed them. I think we. Ha- I don't know. <laughs> I, I think we might so. have had enough mountain house for each of us to have one mountain house per day for that duration of time. Which, that okay, would have been we would have been kind of hungry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so these were, I learned a lot on that trip. Yeah. Um, you know, hunting in general, but also, especially like doing it in the winter. So number one was we had snowshoes, um, but we didn't really use them because we were told they're a lot louder than just walking. Um, but I would have put my snowshoes on when we got to our campsite and just packed down that whole area and made it as flat as I could before because I mentioned earlier I didn't sleep very well because my side was super lumpy Mm -hmm. so that's one thing I would have done next time I think I would just pack you know be more like Levi and pack down my area a lot better we both should have just used the snowshoes it would have been so much easier yeah and then next thing I'm gonna do for the next winter moose hunt is set an alarm because I I don't know how I slept for 12 and a half hours and woke up at 8 but like Levi said, we definitely should have woken up earlier. One, so you know we could have been kind of out and set before the sun came up, but also so we could have eaten breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> because I didn't realize how much food, you know, does for you when you're in the cold. And I think, because it wasn't even that cold. It was probably like in the 20s when we were out there, which is... Yeah, I, th- I think it was... Like was it colder than that? Maybe. Well, the, the, over the night, maybe to single digits. But oh, yeah. yeah and during like, the night, yeah, it definitely got colder. But like yeah, the next 10 day... 10 to 20, probably, yeah. Like, which the, which the spot we were hunting at is pretty mild compared to like other winters. Well, yeah, but it, I was it still, could have been way colder. Yeah, way, I was still freezing though. And I think it's because I didn't eat any food that day. So I was working hard, like going through all that snow and walking all that time. I had I had no my body had no fuel to mm-hmm. like keep myself warm because your body. Right. Maybe I'm totally wrong, uh, but I'm pretty yeah, sure your body needs. To yeah, keep, yep. you need like fuel to keep your body warm. So I think if I would have just because I was like walking and I was still cold and usually when you're trekking like that you get pretty warm. But yeah, I think it's because I didn't eat anything that whole day. So that's that's another thing I would have waking up earlier so i could have eaten breakfast and then i think just like i don't know maybe i'm wrong in this too but your spot really matters yep you know like where you're hunting yeah i feel like that was a really tough spot to hunt and i get a lot of crap from caleb and jordan because like you know, you didn't kill anything because you didn't shoot at anything you know when we saw those two moose from two thousand yards away but if if I knew what, you know, I know now, I would have definitely shot. If I knew those were the only things, that was my only opportunity. I'd be like, yeah, what the heck? I'll just try to shoot these moves from a click away and see if I can shoot. You think well, if you would sh- you think if you'd have shot one of those, you'd have made it out of there in time by the end of that day? 
I think so, because it was pretty early. We, yeah, in the we day. saw him first first light. So yeah. if we would have shot one, we would have, yeah. But, but not knowing what I know now, you know, I still wouldn't have shot because it was a terrible shot. There's I don't no even, way I would have hit him. I don't even know. Even if you did hit him, the chances of it getting hit and then walking into the bush and going <laughs> seven miles. Yeah. Up out True. of the, yeah, at that distance, I don't know. But it was fun. It was a fun experience just to learn and like I don't think I've ever been camping even in the winter so you know just general tips for keeping warm and staying warm in the winter when you're out there was it was just a good learning experience overall it sounds like that particular spot would be better if like you dropped somebody off on either side yeah but then you got some fratricide going on potentially shooting at each other well you gotta just talk about that i think (laughs) it was Basically, the only reason we went there is because those were the only moose we saw when we were spotting the first night, and we got yeah. a little excited to go out and go hunting. Maybe should have we stayed rushed, one more night. We definitely rushed into it. There's some. We were just going so fast trying to get out there, so there's a few things that were forgotten about. Yeah, chaos. but location is definitely key. Yeah, that was a bad location. I think that was yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Well, uh, you guys heard uh, Caleb call in a minute ago. Eric, Caleb, and I are going to go uh, do some fishing tomorrow on an actual river, which just feels so bizarre in the middle of the winter. Yeah, it's February, so. Well, we'll see. Hopefully, it's not supposed to be that cold. It's supposed to be like 28, 29 degrees by tomorrow afternoon, so. Um, Perfect. Yeah, I think it's going to be good, so hopefully we can catch a couple big rainbow trout and uh, and give you guys a good report. I'm going to try to teach myself how to use a switch rod on the fly with a fly i don't know uh anyways levi thanks so much for uh coming on yeah thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me of course um till next time yeah we'll have to have you back on eventually i'll go out and find some adventure so i'll be prepared especially this summer we need to do some once i get my plane up here we should uh do some fly out fishing trips and then we'll do podcasts in the afternoon with you and caleb Oh yeah, well, That'd be pretty four cool. person podcast. I know, really breaking the uh, breaking the minds. Yeah, breaking the mold. Yeah, yeah. Edit that out. I sound like. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening to the Double Hall Podcast. Yeah.